RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Losing sleep over the chances of a credit rating downgrade. I had a holy cow moment at 3.40 a.m. on Saturday. One second I was fast asleep. Then I was sitting up in bed wide awake. Richard Preble wrote that and he joins us on Reality Check Radio. Richard, welcome to our radio station. Thanks for making some time for us. I think it'll be interesting to chat for sure. A real pleasure. Okay, so really you woke up at 3.40 in the morning with a holy cow moment, um, enough to break your sleep. What happened there? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And our subconscious apparently keeps on working all the time. And there was something curious in the paper. There was an article by Paul Glass. He's the CEO of Devon Finance or Funds. He runs a a, a boutique uh, fund uh, company. And he'd written an article in the Herald which the um, Minister of Finance replied to. And I found that curious because Ministers of Finance who are writing the budget don't normally reply to articles written by managers of finance. Then I went through the Minister of Finance's article and he didn't disagree with any of the points that um, Paul Devon had made except to say that he wasn't engaged in any accounting trickery. Well, actually, he is, but that's the point that worried him. And I, I was thinking to myself, why on earth would the Minister of Finance have written this article? And I was brooding about it, and it came to me suddenly at 3 o'clock in the morning, oh, my God, he's worried about a credit downgrade. Right. The but, quiet part out loud. Oh, yeah, yeah I did, actually. <laughs> well, I startled my wife. <laughs> I actually couldn't get back to bed. I, I got up and I and I thought more about it. And I don't know why it had taken me so long to think about it because I used to be the Associate Finance Minister and we worried about our credit rating. We most certainly did. Um, we talked to the credit agencies. We were rather careful how we put things uh, because it might seem minor to go from a double plus, which is what we're at the moment, to just double A, but that actually translates into millions of dollars. Uh, there's a whole lot of loans that are fixed against it, interest rates, but it's not just that. We've got a floating currency, and that's a nice way of putting it. It could also be a sinking currency, huh. and the okay. currency is a bit of a confidence game, and if people don't have to hold the New Zealand dollar, if you really want to you know, stay up at night and you wake up three, 3.40 in the morning. People have to hold the US dollar. People don't have to hold the New Zealand dollar. A lot of international currency traders hold the New Zealand dollar because it's freely tradable. I saw an estimate once that the New Zealand dollar, when it leaves this country, gets traded 22 times before it returns. Um and you, and you can go into overseas banks and see, to your surprise, that one of the currencies often that's listed as the New Zealand dollar when we're tiny. And the reason it's traded is because it's, it's a floating currency. But it can sink. Um, here's a scary one for you. The, news, the Turkish lira and the Kiwi dollar only a few years ago were the same. And the Turks have gone and done a whole lot of really crazy things. Uh, their presence ordered the, their um, Reserve Bank to lower interest rates when they've got inflation. Uh, and their lira is 
what, about a tenth of ours? I, don't, I haven't had a look at it recently, but it, it just dropped like a stone. Well, ours could drop too, and that would be bad news because <clears throat> we buy more overseas than we sell for a start. It would really push along inflation. So um, nobody wants a credit downgrade. I don't want a credit down now. The finance minister doesn't want it. Um, Paul Glass thinks, and I think there's an element of truth to what he's saying, that the restructuring of how we um, describe our debt to the world is partly to make it look better because we suddenly said, look, amongst all our assets are um, uh, national superannuation. Well, the government doesn't actually own that national superannuation. That belongs to the superannuitants or the government pledged that it was, but by putting it in as a government asset, it made our debt-to-GDP ratio, well, it actually halved it as a, as a percentage. But you had Roger Douglas on this program, and one of the things that keeps Roger Douglas up at, up at night is what, what, what what's called our unfunded liabilities. And um, superannuation itself, national super, that's an unfunded liability. It's in effect, a guarantee by the government that when you turn 65, you'll get a pension. But it doesn't appear in the books. If you're a company, it would have to appear in, in your books by law. Now, under the stock exchange rules, you have to put down all your liabilities. Well, the government doesn't put down its future liabilities for superannuation, though they know it. But even more scary one is we've got a health system that's supposed to be available when you need it. Well, you can actually work out the unfunded liabilities for, for health as well. When you put them both together, they're very, very scary. It's um, going a bit off the topic, but you might think, why is the government obviously softening us up for capital gains tax? It's because it wants more revenue. Right. It needs more revenue. It's spent, it's spent all the revenue it's got at the moment. It's, um, it's deficit, how much more it's spending than it's earning. Well, it's basically doubled in just five years. The same thing's happened with our debt per person. The debt per person has basically doubled in just five years. So we've had, a what, 160, 170 years as a nation, and this government in five years has managed to, to double, double the debt that we've got. Um, one of the points I, that Paul Glass made in his article, which I, I completely agree with, is that the government's defence is always, well, it's a hospital defence, I call it. There's always someone worse off in the hospital. So they say, oh, look, you may be feeling sick as a New Zealander, but, you know, if you, if you were the French, you'd be sicker. We're a wonderful, wonderful government. And you can always pick out some country around the world that's even worse run than we are. But the comparisons that they make are often misleading because we have something else. We have a lot of debt ourselves. I mean, New Zealanders. The average New Zealand households, I think it's about $175,000 debt. Well, that's because some people have got $800,000 mortgages. But when you add in the debt that we owe as individuals to the government's debt, we're a very heavily indebted country. And unfortunately, we owe a lot of that money overseas because we are spending more than we're earning. We've got to find billions of dollars in US dollars every year just to fund the international deficit, which is going the wrong way. You know, the, the, it's, it's, 
the way the way you're talking, it sounds like we're kind of being played. Oh, we are being played. Well, the government always puts it, and I have to say, all governments, and probably when I was in government, I tried to put it the most favourable way that I could, but this government's going a bit far. Um, what I worry about is when um, governments swallow their own propaganda, and I think this government is in danger of swallowing its own propaganda. Well, that's even worse, isn't it? Because hickey, you get into a like, um, spiral down there. Well, you know, that's, that's talking about this budget's going to be a tough budget, but every government before the budget claims that it's tough, they soften us up for it. Uh, but uh, the way we are spending is frightening. We are literally borrowing money today to pay for petrol, oh. borrowing it for petrol. You know, the government's holding down the price of petrol. It's borrowing money, and our children and grandchildren are going to have to pay that off. If the government had spent all this money on infrastructure, I'd feel better about it. I used to think that the Muldoon government was the worst government ever, but at least the Think Big projects were real. <laughs> they were concrete. Well, some them. of them are still around, right? The yeah, some of them are still around. plant and Taranaki still there. The things we're spending money on, like petrol subsidies, they, they're not real. When it's spent, it's gone, and the economy isn't any any better. And um, my criticism I've made this week's column of the of, of the National Party is I'm saying, hey, look, fellas, you're not you're not setting out how bad things really are. Do, do they know? Out. Do they know? Oh, of course they do. Um, Christopher Luxon's, you know, he's been the CEO of one of our biggest corporations. He, he, he's got a good grasp. If you actually read his maiden speech, he says there that the New Zealand economy <clears throat> Is, is in need of a drastic overhaul and we need major upgrades. I just wish he'd go on saying that as, as the leader. I think he's advised by his advisors not to scare the, scare the voters. We well, need to be scared. You've been in this position before, I'd say, having to you know, reinvent the wheel almost uh, back in 84. Are we at a similar moment? Uh, yes, I don't think we're running quite out of credit. In 84, we were heading for a credit crunch. And you've got to remember, in, in 1984, um, we, we had a full price freeze, <laughs> I mean, and a wage freeze. Uh, and the government was controlling virtually, virtually everything. Well, no, the situation isn't, isn't as bad as that. Uh, but then when I look at the situation that our health system's in, our health system relative to 1984 is actually worse. Uh, this winter, I, I fear that there will be, I mean, I sound terribly alarmist, but I just think our health system's not going to be able to cope. Um, and that, and that, that's a great worry. And then I look at our education system, in 1984, New Zealand secondary schools and were turning out pupils that, according to the OECD, well, not the OECD, but the international comparisons that we were making, we were amongst the best school graduates in the world. Well, we're now down about 50th on the same, and it's the same test. Uh, so, you know, if you don't educate your next generation, um, that Nations that don't educate their children 
a doomed dog. They just they can't. They, they're, they're doomed to fail. Um, and of course, the Australians haven't made all these changes for citizenship for New Zealanders because they love us. They've made it so they can come over here and loot our uh, our, our best and brightest. And, and our government was putting a happy spin on that, like you know, it's a great thing, and uh, somehow it was good for us. But yeah. how, how could well, it? Well, the be? idea was a great diplomatic triumph by New Zealand's nonsense. I mean, the Aussies did it because it suited the Australians. And the real challenge that we have is we've got to make New Zealand a country that's so attractive that our best and brightest don't want to leave. And before you think that's impossible, in our lifetime, your lifetime and in mine, New Zealand had a higher standard of living than Australia. Now, it sounds hard to believe, but we have been. So we, we could do it again. And then people say, oh, well, they, you know, the Aussies tickle the desert and out comes the minerals. We've actually got more minerals uh, per square metre than the Aussies. Only difference is we won't touch them because either the minerals are in an urban area, which you can't have mining, or, or they're in a wilderness area and you can't have mining. I mean, we'll find out when fossil fuels are banned that we were the Saudi Arabia of the of the South Pacific. I mean, there's, yeah. we, we already know that we probably are because we've got one of the biggest gas fields in the world uh, and wherever you find big gas fields anywhere else in the world, they've found huge oil fields. We've probably got them too. Um, and we'll probably never pull them out because by the time we do find that out, hopefully we've moved on to a post-fossil fuel age. This this sounds like an epic loss of mojo to me, an epic loss, what you're saying. And it, it goes against what we've learned already in the past too, it seems to me. So so who's driving this fundamentally? Um, you know, you mentioned Luxon. He's got business experience. He knows. He won't say anything. Uh, presumably uh, there are the tycoons of New Zealand business who are aware of the situation. You'd think they'd have some say somewhere. Who's driving this fundamentally? Well, I, I was, okay, I, I can't think of any <coughs> non-partisan way to say this. <laughs> this will sound partisan. But I think this is a terrible government. I really do think they've misunderstood the situation that they face. They came into government with the best set of books that any new government in New Zealand's had in living memory. They came in with some pledges to be fiscally responsible and uh, basically blew it. I think they panicked with uh, when we had COVID. Now, COVID was a serious issue, but actually the economy bounced back after our first lockdown very quickly. I actually wrote an article after the first lockdown pointing out to the finance minister that if you go and have a look at the ANZ tracker meter, for those who want to know what that is, the ANZ's economists have realised that if you want to measure what's happening in the economy in real time, just track how, how many truck journeys there are. And you can work that out because every truck has to buy a um, <clears throat> road user charges. So road user charges sales tell you exactly how the economy is going. And I wrote an article back on that then and said, look, if you look at road user charges, the economy's bounced back completely. You don't need any more of these subsidies, Minister. And you Reserve Bank, you don't need to print another dollar. 
the economy's actually back in shape. Well, August is an interesting date because the election was supposed to be October. They printed the money, they spent the money to get, to get an election day boom. But it's brought us all sorts of other problems. It brought us all the asset booms, the house prices going, going through the roof, and today's inflation. And we're still, we are still battling with that uh, overstimulation of the economy. To give you an idea, <clears throat> printing money or quantitative easing, which is the correct way to call it, per capita during COVID, New Zealand did more of it than any other country on, on earth per capita. I mean, that's just crazy. Um, and then if you look at the spending, the government spent $70 billion. I know that's a telephone number. It's hard to get your, get your head around it. But a way of looking at it, 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 which actually I borrowed from Paul Glass, is if you look at um, Pharmac, you know, cost a lot of money of all the drugs, uh, they spend, what, $1.6 billion? <laughs> We spent 50 times more than that uh, boosting an economy that, that didn't need it. Um, and I, I, I and they did that. that. You're saying, are you I don't saying think that anyone they did in their that? Cabinet can can add. I really don't. <laughs> are you saying that they did that for their own political gain? Oh, because, absolutely. Well, absolutely. they're throwing us under the bus for that, then, aren't they? I mean, what? Who are these? As we say, who are these people? Well, I think uh, most of today's politicians have become what I call office seekers rather than policy seekers. They're actually. They're not cynical. Maybe, uh, maybe it's my age, but I look at them and think, "What do you want about you? You just want office. You should actually be wanting to be in in parliament in order to do something." I mean, I look at our present prime minister. He's axed most of the government's policies. So I then think to myself, well, "You were in favour of them all, presumably you're in the cabinet. What are you there for?" And now I've got. I've got, got no idea what, he, what he's there for. I just know he needs more revenue. So they're softening us up for a capital gains tax. Um, and the thing to remember about taxes is that they're like acorns. They always start small and they grow into a huge oak tree. Um, of course they're saying, well, they'll never have capital gains on the family home. Um, when they first started income tax, I think income tax was at five cents in the pound or something. I mean, it was pennies, and it was temporary in, in 1799, I think it was, in order to help finance the Napoleonic Wars. Well, of course, it's never gone away. And if you have a capital gains tax, it'll, they'll come for your, for your house. I mean, um, they say it's all about equity. So why should someone who lives in a... $22 million Mac mansion um, be capital gains free, whereas the poor fellow who owns a $100,000 batch, um, find, but because he doesn't live in it permanently, finds it subject to capital gains tax. Eventually, the argument for capital gains tax, if you believe in it, will apply to everyone. Uh, and why? Because uh, governments have, just spent, have spent all the money they've got and my advice to everyone is don't give them more money. It just encourages them. Mm -hmm. Well, you should know. 
no, been there, been around long enough, and I wouldn't think, trust them. <laughs> based on uh, yeah, um, so I'm thinking, if, if I'm right, you were in Parliament back in the days of maybe even Keith Holyoke, certainly Bill Rowling, and through that '84 period. Um, how do you think? Uh, what was politics like then? You, you mentioned you know people are in it for the job now. We we was that those generations, earlier generations, there to do good? Is that what you? Kind of saying. Selfless, uh, yes, I'd, I'd, like to th- I'd like to think that all people standing for parliament um, at least start off with good intentions. It, it, it just seems to me that we we have more office seeking. So, um, does that speak to the background we, of some we, of these people? An example of a politician who I I wasn't in parliament with him, but I most certainly heard him giving some speeches, and that's Sir John Marshall. Now, Sir John Marshall had a clear vision for the National Party, and he believed in a property, what he called a property-owning democracy in free enterprise, and he also said that the National Party represented every New Zealander. So he was opposed to the idea of a political party representing class. He was appalled at the thought of a political party representing race, or religion, or where you were born. Well, we now have political parties in Parliament that are openly representing race. I mean, the Māori Party doesn't hide the fact that it, it doesn't, it's only interested in, in people of, 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 one, of one particular race. The Labour Party at the moment says it's re- representing working people, um, but where's the National Party? I mean, uh, I would have thought that the logical argument they could make against this particular government is that um, uh, they're sectional, that they're, they're just representing parts of New Zealand and not the whole country. And that's the sort of debates that we used to have. I'm not seeing them so much uh, now. The um, I don't want to colour the lily. The Parliament debates when I first went in there were pretty brutal. I mean, um, Muldoon was a, he sort of knew your jugular and he, he didn't hesitate. He went straight forward. People say now that I held great debates with him. That's not how I remember it. My memory is that he beat the hell out of me. It was the only reason that, that people praise me is because I didn't stop. <laughs> but um, how, how do you think history views Robert Muldoon now? Uh, uh, so Roger wasn't not, too not, too friendly not, about it, but not well. Um, the um, oh man, he did leave the New Zealand economy in a in a hell of a mess. Uh, yeah. and he and one man held too much power. He shouldn't have the. Prime Minister, also the Finance Minister. I mean, oh, it's, okay. It's yeah, yeah. Far, far too much um, uh, individual individual power. Um, but having said that, um, he sh- he should have been a lawyer. My I got no redeeming features, so I used to be a barrister. <laughs> and Muldoon would have been would have made a great barrister. He had a mind like a steel trap. Um, gee whiz, he, he had a very good memory. Um, and when I first came in, I, he and I would have debates, trying to remember various things. 
and um, I was rather pleased when I ever beat him, it was only when I reached his age that I was even more in awe of them. Good God, he was 60 and he could remember all those things. <laughs> I'm 60 and I can't remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> Do you think he was waking up at 3.40 in the morning or, or did, did, did things not? Oh, I think he was worried about our credit rating um, because our credit rating did take a, did take a big hit. Um, it, took us, it took Roger Douglas quite a while to get our credit rating back up again. But we, we, you know, we've had a wonderful spell in New Zealand economically for about the last 30 years we've had the government's books have, under both national and labor have been kept together uh, very well uh, well I think we could have done better we, we've had a great spirit period of, of growth and then we've got this government that's just come along and they they've never seen a problem that they don't think couldn't be solved by throwing money at it and um, when they've run out of the money, they've just gone out and borrowed more. I mean, they're, they're borrowing money hand over fist, and they keep saying, "Well, the books are going to come come right, but um, not yet. It'll be <laughs> a few more years." You have to relax. It's a bit again. like their, about their predictions about inflation. You know, we're, we're going to have no inflation, but not not yet. It's going to happen next year or the year after. Um, and, and I uh, don't want to depress your your listeners further, but. The government's not going to get inflation under control this year. What they've shown is what the IMF warned them. The IMF said you can't get inflation under control unless you have your fiscal and monetary policies working together. So we've got Reserve Bank's got its foot on the brake and the Minister of Finance has got its foot on the accelerator and the economy's doing wheelies. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. What about ACT? You've got history there. Where are they in this in election year? Are they a potential saviour? Uh, well, I think they might be. Um, I have to say I'm full of admiration for David Seymour. Um, I used to lead the ACT Party and I, uh, I sort of got it to touch 9%. Um, he's been polling at 10 or better now for 18 months. Normally with third parties, when the election comes, Third parties actually jump in support. And, and the reason for that is that most of us actually think in first past the post terms. So when the poller rings up and says, who do you support? People normally pick one of the two major parties. But when they get an election, they realise, oh, I've got two votes. So I might give one to Labour and one to the Greens or someone else, or I might give one to National and one to ACT. So if ACT's polling as it has been at 10 or 11% for 18 months, I wouldn't be at all surprised if ACT polled 18% uh, in the election. And that 18% turned out to be crucial because if you add that to what, how the National Party's been polling, uh, then they do become, become the government. The question is, though, is that support just bleeding out from National or from across the board? Uh, how do we know? Well, we, we don't, but uh, again, if you're voting strategically, it's actually the smart way to vote is to vote for a major party for a constituency and then pick whatever you like out of the third parties for your party vote because you add them, you then add them both together. Uh, so, and I think, I, think that's going to, I think that's going to happen. 
And the other so, way too, you know, Labor and the Labor and the Greens have got closer and closer together. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've heard people say, I think Sir Rogers said it, but others have said it as well, that this government has to go. For the good of the country, this this government has to go. There, I know as Muriel Newman, there has to be a change of government. Do you think that? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I really do think that this is a, it, it is a very poor government, and I'm not trying to be malicious towards them. I, 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 here's the problems that they've got. They had nine years in opposition, and they basically did no work on policy. So when they got elected, they announced, depending on how you count it, something between 15 and 25 inquiries into all sorts of things. They spent two, three years on those inquiries, then along came COVID, and COVID, okay, knocked the economy around. But after five years, I just ask you to think, what have they actually done? And and that's one problem. The second problem that I do have is that without a mandate, they have adopted a very, very radical view of of the Treaty of Waitangi, Um, the normal view about the Treaty of Waitangi, the view that the people had who signed it, both Maori and, and Governor Hobson, was that they were signing a three-part treaty. One was the ceding sovereignty to the Crown, two was protecting uh, property rights, and three was granting citizenship rights to everyone. Uh, a treaty that I think's enlightened for 1840 and still pretty good for today. But now we've got a new version of the treaty. Oh, no, uh, apparently Governor Hobson and, and Queen Victoria, to their surprise, uh, agreed to rule New Zealand with 500-odd native chiefs, um, a notion which, which would have come as a great surprise to Queen Victoria um, and probably a big surprise to most of the native chiefs who actually would sign the treaty in order to get the Crown to do something they couldn't do, and that was to end the musket wars, which the Crown did. Um, it's a pretty good deal if you were facing the possibility of being shot uh, was 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 a peace treaty. Well, this government's come along and said, no, no, we're um, we're agreeing to go into co-government with a group of uh, self-selected iwi leaders, um, a sort of New Zealand House of Lords. Not quite sure how they're picked, and um, they're going to have half the say. Uh, that's not democratic. And the challenge that I put to the government and others have put, not just me. Name me any country in the world ever that has succeeded deciding to split its sovereignty, especially along racial lines. Um, it can't work. It shouldn't work. And if it's wrong in South Africa, it's wrong in, wrong in New Zealand. And, again, my quarrel a little bit with the National Party is, well, some national MPs, I think of Paul Goldsmith, have written quite good articles pointing out how, how this is a disastrous course of action, I yet see the National Party actually make it uh, an election issue. Um, I personally think a, a Labor government that's supported by the Greens, who are socialists, and I'm quoting Mr Luxon, and, and, and supported by the Maori Party, who are separatists, well, I think that's unelectable. But why is it not unelectable? Well, Mr Luxon then turns around and says... He doesn't rule out doing a deal with the Greens or the Maori Party himself. I mean, well, what's, who's, what's who's he up speaking to? into what's his he ear? About? Yeah, who's who's telling him these things, or do you think he believes it? 
I, I think he's time's running out. By, I think he's surrounded by some um, political advisors who basically say that he should do anything for office. And you're saying, what's the difference? I'll say this to, about Muldoon. Muldoon would never have agreed to that. Um, John Marshall would never have agreed to that. I don't think um, Holyoke would have either. Um, and Holyoke, I was in Parliament with Holyoke. Uh, uh, I can't imagine him doing it, but I'll tell you who else wouldn't have agreed to it. David Longy would never have agreed to that. Helen Clark would never have agreed to that. We've made a huge constitutional change without it, without it being subject to a debate, without it being subject to an election. Uh, and if we really are going to go down this course, well, let's at least vote on it. And I know which way I want to vote. I, I And, um, you know, I've, I've got... Uh, uh, grandchildren who would be cla class who could classify themselves as Maori, they they don't want to be uh, identified by their race. They want to be have the same rights as every other New Zealander, uh, and that's what I believe in. Um, Funny enough, it's why I joined the Labor Party. <laughs> I thought that every New Zealander should have one at that point. Those how old I am, one three millionth of the opportunities that exist in this country. And I still believe that every New Zealander should have one uh, five millionth. That doesn't mean to say we should get equal shares. Some people will work harder than others and, and others will sit, down, sit back on the beach um, and, and that's their right, but they can't then come along and demand to have some of your property when they didn't work for it. Well, that seems fair enough. <laughs> well, you're me. <laughs> yeah, well, but uh, you'll be surprised how many politicians actually are campaigning to transfer wealth from one group of New Zealanders to another. But why, though? This is the thing. In the end, what's the benefit? Is it some kind of crazy ideological rabbit yes. hole? That you okay. That's right. You're answering your own question, but there are people who've always thought that. Uh, the only way we'll ever all be equal, well, Pol Pot did it out, it's year zero. When everyone's got nothing, uh, then we'll be equal. And if you can show me a country that has managed to be prosperous practising communism, I'd like to see it. I mean, the present Chinese uh, uh, party may call itself communist, but having been to China, I assure you, <laughs> It is an extraordinary capitalistic country. Um, and capitalism has, has lifted tens of millions of people out of poverty, and socialism has reduced tens of millions of people to poverty. Okay, back to the uh, where we started, that um, losing sleep moment and uh, prompted by that letter, that reply letter that you saw from Grant Robertson. It's so that was that was the first. He, he was relieving his unease, uneasiness in some way, and he kind of gave away his position with you then. So I how think so. I, th I think that within the Treasury right now, um, they are very worried about the possibility of a downgrade. Um, what will help them is that the um, credit agencies are notoriously slow. And the example I gave in my article was. Um, 
Uh, was it Beer Stir? No, um, Lehman Brothers. Um, they had an A rating to one day before they collapsed. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Uh, Greece had a double A rating until a, f- a few months before they had their great debt uh, crisis. And, and the credit rate agencies, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they take, take a few months before they downgrade us. But um, if you want me to bet, I, I think we're, we're going to have a credit downgrading. It's just a matter of time to when it's going to turn up. You, you, you can't run a deficit with the rest of the world as big as the one we're running. It's a record deficit. It's higher than during the global financial crisis. It's three, three times, no, four times, four times higher. Um, it's just unsustainable. And I'm afraid that effect will eventually affect the interest we pay, not just on the government's debt, but on people's mortgages, car loans, the whole, the whole works. Uh, and I think it will also affect the value of the dollar, and that means the cost of everything from petrol to other imports will, will rise. Um, I, I'm actually very concerned about the present situation of the New Zealand economy. Okay. And I was just thinking also, um, just in the last day or so, there's been a, a bit of focus on wealthy people not paying their fair share of tax Put that with the letter response, you losing sleep and the possibility of a credit downgrade and then capital gains. Is yeah, that the well, next I, thing? I haven't, haven't yet managed to go right through the report, but I, um, I'm always very nervous when people start talking about fairness because yeah. um, if you go and have a look at the middle income where they're saying aren't paying their share of tax, they're not including if I understand it correctly, the huge increase that the average Aucklanders received in their house. Okay. So they aren't including that, but they are including the huge increase that the 300 families have received in their shares and the like. So we're not comparing like with like for a start, but I, I could be wrong with that, but I've got to examine it more carefully. But the other thing that's not, not fair about it, though, is, and I'll just take the average Aucklander who owns their own house. Um, if you if you will suddenly start to be taxed on the way your house goes up in value, my God, you'd be in trouble. And that's basically what the what this report's talking about with with regard to the so called um, wealthy New Zealanders. And it's also double tax. Um, how can I illustrate that? Okay, I'll do it even from a tax that I think's unfair. The government taxes you on the interest that you have on your savings in a savings bank. So you've got your money in the savings bank, the bank gives you a miserable 2%, and then the government comes along and taxes you on the 2%, but inflation's actually running at 7%. So you've gone back 6%. See how unfair that is? And you've actually been double taxed because the money you put in the bank, that you probably earned that, and you paid income tax, you put it in the put it in the bank, so you've already it's already been taxed, and the government's taxing it again. It's exactly the same with capital gains taxes. You earn some money, you buy yourself some shares out of taxable taxed money, and then you're going to get taxed on it again. It's double taxation. But um, 
and I can give you some other arguments against capital gains taxes. I mean, they, uh, oh, I'll give you one of them. For example, in Switzerland, they have cantons. Yep, and, where are those? Yep. Yep. And they're very independent. And eight of the cantons decided to remove their capital gains taxes. Seven of the eight could actually show that their economies boomed as a result of removing it. And the reason for that is that capital gains taxes are a disincentive to entrepreneurs. They're also a disincentive to making um, transfers because if you have a capital gains which only taxes you when you realise the gain, what that makes you do is it makes you not sell anything. Well, that's very bad for for an economy. But um, but I still come back to my main argument against capital gains taxes. Look, you don't want to give the government any more money. It just encourages them. <laughs> and they're softening up to announce it, aren't they? They're, oh, of course they are. Yeah, well, yeah, you wouldn't have done the survey about. unless he wanted to, and he, and he picked it in such a way... Um, say it's unfair, but here's another way around it. Um, 10% of all New Zealanders basically pay the bulk of all income tax. So already the wealthy in New Zealand are, are paying way above their share, and half of all New Zealanders pay virtually no tax, and when you add in the benefits that they're getting, over half of New Zealanders actually get more money from the government than they give out, um, which they never, no one ever quotes it to you. But you know, they say, "Oh, this here we got these poor families who are, who, who, who are so badly off." Well, they're getting free health, they're getting free education, which is worth tens of thousands of dollars of dollars a year. Plus, they're getting all the money that the government's giving them and they're paying nothing. Now, okay, maybe they need a bit more, but they, if you actually add in all the other payments that the government's giving them, which no one ever does from Poverty Action, they never say, here's a family of four and they're receiving $120,000 in educa pre-education and they're receiving another $30,000 a year in free health. No, they only count up the, um, the pension that they're getting. Well, if you actually... From a taxpayer's point of view, and from that family's point of view, there, we have huge income transfers in New Zealand already, and this government's proposing to do even more. And I just say to them, you just point to me a country that has prospered by clobbering those who actually make the wealth. You got a feeling, just to wind up, that, uh, I mean, they... they They've got an election to win. It sounds like a, a bit of a stretch, given what's uh, happening, how people are feeling. Um, is this is this capital gains tax? Do you think they're going to try, as a policy, try and make this their big positive in a weird think, sort of I, inverted I, way? Yeah, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we had a campaign of envy. Um, there's a uh, there's a poll that's done every election, and we've done this election. And the headline will be the same. Surprise, surprise. 60% of New Zealanders favour increasing taxation. Well, it's no surprise. 60% of New Zealanders basically pay no taxation. <laughs> okay. And they'll have. Surprise, surprise. 60% of New Zealanders favour a capital gains tax. Well, of course they, 
Of course they do. Because and it targets the rich. And it, it targets, targets the, the rich who aren't paying their share. Yeah, and, and they say that, and they'll put it together saying they're only going to be applying it to just one person in 10. And, of course, everyone gets a vote. Um, one person in 10, that's a pretty uh, – oh, I, 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 I wouldn't be surprised if Labor ran a campaign like that. And I do not underestimate Chris Hipkins' campaigning abilities. He's been doing it uh, since he was 17. You know, he was a student politician. About as and, young as you. And he's pretty good at it. <laughs> he started. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Well, that's been a really interesting um, interview chat, uh, well, Richard Pebble. I'm, I'm so pleased I haven't bored you. No, not at all. Time's flown. Thank you. And um, really interesting to, you know, to hear from people like you at a time like this. Well, all the best with your radio station. Yep. Thank you. And uh, and we may talk again. Thanks for your time. Yes. Pleasure. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.